Well, good morning. We got any Toby Mac fans in the audience today? This is not a test. This is the real thing. There ain't no practice runs in life. What a line, isn't it? You know this is true, right? There ain't no practice runs in life. And so how do we go after the good life that we know God wants for us, but we so frequently find incredibly elusive? My name is Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free. Great to see you today. Good to be with you here in the auditorium and in the venue. If you're watching online, thanks for joining us today. We're in this uh, second week of a seven-week series titled The Good Life, in which we simply acknowledge here today that uh, the Bible would provide for us a more compelling portrait of what the good life is than what our world provides, and frankly, what oftentimes the church has provided over our lives. We want a more compelling portrait of what the good life is, and I think we do find it in Jesus, but we got to plumb a little bit deeper. I love the way Eleanor Roosevelt put it some 80 years ago. She said, life is like a parachute jump. You got to get it right the first time. There ain't no practice runs in life, right? It's a parachute shoot. It's just one jump. You got to get it right the the first time. And so last week, we started off this series by starting um, I just think a, a critical message, frankly, if you, you weren't here last week, you probably need to go back and listen to that. I don't want to recommend my own messages. That's kind of annoying. But that, the content of that message is critical for, for this entire series. The content of that message last week relates to our anchor. And our anchor is our core identity, our primary identity in Jesus Christ. That the first thing about us is we are children of God sons and daughters of God who ultimately will be victors with Christ, and we have to get the first thing first, right? Like across all of life, if we don't get the first thing first, then the second things are way out of place too. And sadly, what we're seeing a lot of times today is people are taking second things, secondary identities, which do matter, okay? Secondary identities do matter. I'll just reiterate that from last week. They do matter. Like your heritage Your culture, your nationality, your workplace that you've given 40 years to, it matters and it becomes part of your bones. It becomes part of your identity. That's okay. I think God would give allowance for that. But the sad thing, what is happening today, is so many people, even in the church, are allowing secondary things to become the main thing. And if you allow a secondary thing to become the main thing, it ceases to be a good thing anymore. And moreover... All these other secondary things will be out of place as well. And so we root ourselves in our primary identity that we are children of God bought with the price of Jesus' blood. And we live out of this while we are friends of God as we'll talk about some today as well. Uh, Matt mentioned this in here a little bit already. But did you get a chance uh, this past week to meditate on a specific passage? We talked about doing that seven times a day as it relates to our identity as children of God. And... um, the idea was kind of transforming our minds around what is true for us and anchoring us again. Would you just nod your head with me if you had a chance to do that last week? Okay, I see a few nods. Was that helpful for you if you did? Yeah. If you haven't had an opportunity to do that yet, good thing. God gave us another week. We could try it this week. Um, that, that's a great practice, which I go back to on a regular basis. What we really want to do in the Christian life is develop a bunch of tools. 
We have a really, really good tool belt that would help us to grow spiritually, that we would feed ourselves. And that's just one of those tools, though, that we can utilize, is bathe ourselves in what is true about us, meditate on that, pray about it throughout the day. I did that last week, and I I tell you, it made a huge difference for me. Um, But here's the truth. If you want to have behavioral change, it begins with identity change. If you want to have a change in your thinking, it begins with identity change. And then from there, as we mentioned last week, we need to move to our affections. Change in behavior, change in lifestyle, change in thinking begins with our anchor, our identity, and then it begins by tapping into our affections. Now the message of this morning is more compelling than a beer commercial. And that is intentionally provocative. Okay, we're not going to watch any beer commercials in here. You've already seen them, haven't you? You already know what they say. And you're in church, so we ain't watching any here. Okay, but that's an intentionally provocative title because the simple truth is many of us are getting our portraits of what the good life is from commercials. Commercials portray for us Something of what this world believes the good life to be. If you watch the latest string of corona ads, for example, not coronavirus, corona beer, they are communicating this idea. There's one particularly that I've seen where you have a bunch of young people in an office cubicle hating their jobs, then all of a sudden they have a a beer in their hands and they're transferred to the beach. And as they're transferred to, to the beach, you see all these beautiful women looking at these young men, and you see this mix of sex appeal, admiration, status, and vacation from life. And the tagline at the end of these commercials is, that's the fine life, right? You hear it? That's the good life. Like, really? Just eat, drink, and be merry? That could be written out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Just eat, drink, and be merry, because then we die, that's it. No, it's got to be way, way better than that. Now again, advertisers understand. They are really intelligent, and they understand. Therefore, they are making appeals, be it through phones or cars or beer commercials or Nikes. They understand how to get to you. And they understand uh, that if they can bypass logic and get to the power center of the heart, they can lead you to make decisions on the basis of their description of the good life, which is always some combination of admiration, sex appeal, youthfulness, status, and power. They do all that through a 30-second television ad. Now, the church tends to present a gospel to people that includes only forgiveness of sins, and an eternal state in heaven when I die. And that's a wonderful offer, and that's absolutely true. But I want to tell you today that that by itself is not enough. It just isn't. Because advertisers understand that if they appeal to our power center, they get us. And we in the church have failed to appeal to the power center in people. The power center 
by which most people make most of their decisions is their heart. I see you nodding your head right now. We make our decisions, by and large, unfortunately, for good and for ill, out of our affections, out of our desires, and so the church needs to do a better job of appealing to higher level affections and desires and purposes and passions. In general, many times the church is much more comfortable appealing to people's minds and giving them content, giving them information, and appealing to people's hands, giving them something to do. And both of those are critical for discipleship. In fact, the truth is, you know, if you've been around here for the past five years, if I err in one way in my teaching, it's by appealing too much to the mind, isn't it? You, you all know that about me. Like, I'm a content person. I'm overeducated and underintelligent. Okay? I'm a content person that appeals too much, if I'm not careful, to the mind. And what I'm learning as I'm aging and as I meet with people more and more, the reason people get into such a pickle is because they're making decisions out of their hearts. And they haven't had an appeal to the grander affections of the heart. Uh, all of those are needed. Appeals to the mind, appeals to the hands, and appeals to the heart as well. And if the church bypasses the heart, here's what happens. Advertisers in every different realm cast the line, and they hook us in. And they pull us up like unsuspecting bluegills. They grab us. What I want you to hear this morning, the bottom line of the, this morning's message is that Jesus wants you to be seized by the power of a greater affection. This is the bottom line that you gotta hold on to today. Jesus wants you and me to be seized by the power of a much greater affection. Jesus really cared about your affections. You see, Jesus was super smart, but also he was sensitive. Jesus was logical, but also he was loving. Jesus debated with people when necessary. But more than debating with people, Jesus desired people. Let me give you just a handful of examples of Jesus, his beating heart, his longing for our affections, some of his affection as we see it in the Gospels. I wanna take you through a number of passages real quickly. The first one, though, you'll see up on the screen comes from uh, John chapter 17, verse three. And this is the closest thing that we have in the Bible to a definition of what eternal life is. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer that he prays just before he goes to the cross. And he says, as he's praying to his Father, and this prayer is written for us in John 17, now this is eternal life. Okay, what is it? Here it is. Listen, th this is eternal life. That they may know me, that they may know you, Father God, and that they kn may know Jesus Christ, your Son, whom you sent. These two things, this is eternal life. It doesn't say future tense, does it? Is that written in present tense or future tense? So someone tell me. That's in present tense, right? So let's say it together. This is, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. This is eternal life here and now. It's not grin and bear it and wait till we die. Yes, we get eternal life when we die, but we get eternal life starting today. 
How? By knowing emotionally, personally. The word know here in Greek means to love. By loving the only true God and by loving Jesus Christ whom he sent, by knowing on an intimate level God himself. Here's another example. John 17, 25, the apostle John is leaning back against Jesus at the Last Supper while Jesus is explaining to John and the other disciples that one of his disciples is going to betray him. And John's response to that, leaning back against Jesus, like imagine this. Imagine this. He's leaning back against the chest of his Savior. Like this is the kind of friendship that is invited to us with God. Leaning back against Jesus, the Apostle John asks him, Lord, who is it? Who's going to betray you? Who would do that? Or Luke 24, 32, Jesus walking with these two men immediately after his resurrection and he kind of catches them unaware and after explaining the scriptures to them, he goes away and they ask each other after this walk with Jesus on Emmaus Road, were not our hearts burning within us? They were pumping at a different level within us while we walked along the road while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. Do you hear the passion? Do you hear the emotion in it there? Okay, well, one more example. Jesus goes to the home of his dear friends Mary and Martha. And yeah, you all know the story. There's Mary and Martha, and Martha is serving Jesus, and Mary's just hanging out with Jesus, just enjoying the presence of Jesus. And both are critically important. We both serve Jesus, and also we spend time with Jesus. But he speaks to Mary and Martha in this moment as Martha commands Jesus. Well, she's got some gall, doesn't she? She commands Jesus, tell Mary to help me. Well, you, you got to have some guts to say that to the Lord of the universe. She says, tell Mary to help me. And uh, Jesus responds as Mary, who is sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about so many things. But few things are needed, indeed only one. Here's the one thing, here's the primary thing, to sit with me. Mary has chosen what is better, and it won't be taken away from her. Again, you, you tap into the emotion of our Lord, of our good God, of our King, of our Savior, who invites us to friendship with him, to sit at his feet and to enjoy him. This was a man burning with passion and power and purpose, and he invited us to the same. One of his purpose statements in John chapter 10 is this, I have come that you all, that we all, may have life and have it more abundantly. That we actually could have life here today to the full. Now today many people use the term born again to describe the experience that they had of spiritual rebirth. That once I was going on my own, doing my own thing, we all had the gospel of meism at one point or another. Now I've been converted to, to Jesus and I've been born again by him, born anew by him. And that's a wonderful phrase. Interestingly, if you do your church history, after the Second Great Awakening in the United States, back around 1900, many people in the South didn't use the term born again. 
Down in the deep south, they tended to use a different term to describe their conversion to Christ. They would say this, I was seized by the power of a great affection. I was over here. I was going this way, doing my own thing. And Jesus, he came and he got me. He grabbed me by my neck. And he seized me by the power of a different and better affection. Doesn't that say it so beautifully? That's such a powerful statement. I was seized by the power of a, great, of a great affection. I think that's what John had going on in him as he's leaning back against Jesus at the Last Supper. Wrapped in attention with him. Worshiping him. Again, the problem is not that our desires are too great. The problem is our desires are too weak and we are far too easily pleased. So the question is, why is that? Why do we tend to be seized by lesser powers? What's the problem here? Why aren't we seized more by the power of God's great affection? And there could probably be many, many different reasons given in answer to this question, why aren't we seized more by the power of God's great affection? But I want to give you just two that many times I think stand in the way for many of us. The first one is this, shallow relationships tend to make spiritual depth hard to comprehend. And we live in a culture today where we are more connected to more people than ever before, but we are less intimate with people than we used to be. Primarily because of social media, we have thousands of connections, but very few close relationships. We also live in a culture, we need to admit, that many of us have been taught from our childhood to value being restrained and to value being non-emotional about anything. And I get that. There's nothing wrong with that. At times, that can be a very good thing. That can be a godly characteristic that many of us have in this room. But I think it's worthy of asking the question, if the value is always to be restrained, never to give your heart, how then do you develop deep relationships with another person? And if we cannot develop deep relationships with another person, then how do we make sense of a close personal relationship with God? And there are many people that I have met who have great difficulty understanding how can I develop an intimate relationship with God? Like, I don't have any experience with that. But we are invited to that with God, and part of the way we get there, I believe, is by developing healthy relationships with at least a couple other people. This is purely anecdotal. I don't have any statistics to to support this. But I can just tell you that my own life, my own adult life, I've had a number of years where I haven't had any close friends. For probably two and a half or three years in my marriage, Susie and I prayed that God would give me one really good male friend. And then God provided in a great way with two or three wonderful friends in a different season of life. Now, I've had other seasons of life, including this one right now, where I have a couple really good friends. And I cannot tell you how much more enriching my life is. Like, there's elements of my heart that have been unlocked in the most positive and beautiful ways 
by virtue of having a couple men who I know are walking in the same direction as I am toward more of Jesus, who are helping me to be a better father, who are helping me to be a better employee, helping me to be a better husband, helping me to be a better Christian. And hopefully, occasionally, I'm doing the same for them. And together, we're walking together toward Christ, and I experience from them empathy and encouragement and exhortation and back and forth, we walk with one another. And this untaps elements of the God-given human heart that he has provided for us such that we would grow in relationship with a few others and ultimately, more importantly, well, with God himself. But I'm telling you, it's hard to make sense of that with God if we close ourselves off to having it with anyone else in the flesh. This is why we prioritize here better together. Like, I mean, life groups alone won't do that, but life groups provide a platform by which those kinds of friendships can happen. If you don't have a life group, we can help you in any way to get in community here, we will. Second, another reason that we aren't seized by the power of of God's great affection is this. We tend to overindulge in immediate pleasures. And we all tend to do this. We tend to overindulge in immediate pleasures that are right before us. One of my favorite books that I would read to my kids well, when they were younger was Berenstein Bears, The Case of the Greedy Gimme Gimmies. It's one of the most theologically rich books I have in my library. And it's this wonderful story of Papa Bear and Mama Bear with Baby Bear and Sister Bear. I forget their names, but the two kids, the two bears. And... Um, they have a, a bad, bad, bad case of the greedy gimme gimmies. And they go to the toy store and it comes out. And they go in the candy store and it comes out. And they go in the grocery store and it comes out. And mom and dad, can you imagine it? And like it's, it's pretty uh, pitiful when you see it in the book. Um, but it's like harrowing when you see it in your own kids, right? And we've all been there. Two hands up on this stage. We've all been there. And it's really, really tough. Well, when you see it in your kids... But the sad truth is, it ain't only in our kids, right? It ain't only in our kids. It's in us too. We all got the same case of the greedy gimme gimmies. Where we say, I want this, I gotta have that. And it's more difficult for us today, I believe, than it was for our ancestors generations ago because we are so much more wealthy than our ancestors were. And the result is, we can constantly indulge if we want to, right? Come on, somebody. Right? Like 24-7, if we want to, we can push the easy button. And so we hear this about doing a quiet time with God and how gratifying it will be to enjoy time with God. And you say to your pastor, oh, I've done that four or five times and it didn't work for me. And so you move on to something else like a night of Netflix and a tub of ice cream. Because it's just easier. It's just easier and it's always before us. And we can live our entire lives like that if we're not careful. We need to learn to wrestle with God again and develop those practices. It's also more difficult now because advertisers are really intelligent. And we watch a lot of TV and we see lots of ads on social media and everywhere on the internet and they go through the eyes, the gateway of the eyes, into the brain and here's exactly what happens in your brain. 
those advertisements go into your brain and they light up this important chemical in your brain called dopamine. Somebody say dopamine. Okay, they light up dopamine and dopamine is that gimme, gimme, gimme hormone. It's that chemical that says gimme more, gimme more, gimme more. And so the more you engage in that, which is constantly coming into our eyes and therefore into our brain, the more we gotta have it. It's the gotta have it chemical. So I gotta have more, I gotta have more, I gotta have more. And these advertisers, you must understand they're really smart. They know just what they're doing. Like most of them have master's degrees in psychology. And they know how to curry covetousness for what you do not have. And they also know how to curry disdain for what you do have. And this is the two things that advertisers try to do. Curry covetousness for what you don't have. And discontent, disdain for what you do have. But the sad fact is, the more we overindulge in immediate pleasures, the less we are interested in the greater pleasure of Christ. I like to talk to Brad Brandt about this, who teaches our recovery ministry here at Carney E. Free on Monday nights at 6.30. And he talks with men and women about all different kinds of hang-ups that they have, different addictions that they have. And one of the verses that he regularly reinforces to them is the beautiful, surprising paradox of Jesus, in which he regularly says to us, he who seeks to save his life loses it. He who seeks to save his life by saying, I'll take more of this and more of that and more of this and more of that. We see it all the time. They lose it. They lose life. They choose immediate gratification and they lose delayed gratification. He who seeks to save his own life will lose it, but he who loses his life for me and for my sake, for Jesus' sake, that one actually finds it. Now this is true. This is in all of us, and so we have to learn once again the value of saying no. We're not going to do any deep expositional study today, but if you want to turn with me here to Genesis chapter 39, we'll see a great example of a man who understood the power of no. And it's critical for, for us to grow once again in the power of no over every different area of life such that we would be seized once again by the greater affections. And this was a man by the name of Joseph. And Joseph was a faithful Jewish man who loved and worshipped God. He was also a slave inside of Egypt. And as a slave, he rises up to second in command in Egypt. And he's this young, strapping, single man. And a beautiful woman keeps on coming after him when they are in private quarters together, he keep, she keeps on coming after him. But Joseph, fortunately, had developed the power of a greater affection toward God, which was faithfulness and the joy of integrity. And so as this woman kept on coming after him, he refused to engage in any illicit sex because he had in his mind, this is God's will that I would wait till marriage. This is God's will that I would live in faithfulness and I want the joy of integrity before him. And so this is how it went down. Exodus 39, verse 10 and 11. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, this beautiful woman coming to him, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. One day the plot thickened and he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak, his outer garment, and said, Come to bed with me. 
But he was seized by the power of a greater affection. And so he left his cloak in her hand, and he said no. He ran out of the house, and she's holding his cloak while he is wisely resisting and running away. It's not just that he had the power of no. It's that he had the power of yes. He had the power of a greater yes, which was, I, I want to honor my God. I want faithfulness before my king. Like, I know I want this, but I want this way more. And so he was seized by the power of a greater affection. There is an expulsive power to knowing what your first love is. And affection for God was greater than anything else, which enabled him to resist, to run. And if you know Joseph's story, if you want to read it later on, Genesis 37 through 50, you know that he was rewarded, wasn't he? He was rewarded. Here's another promise, much the same way. Galatians 6 verse 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good. Let us not become weary in pursuing holiness and righteousness and faithfulness because in proper time we will receive our due reward. God will reward us if we don't give up. The life of holiness is tough. It takes work. But it's far more emotionally gratifying to save up for a holiday at the beach than just having the little sandbox in our backyard every day. And so we save up for a greater reward in God. We learn to fast now in order that maybe one day we'll be able to feast. We abstain now in order that some other day we get to enjoy the life of abundance. We persevere with very little right now. We live beneath our means right now in order that we would gain a whole lot more later because she who seeks to save her life by always pushing the easy button loses it. And she loses it for the sake of Christ, really finds it unto abundant life. So, how do I do it? How do I do it, Adrian? How do I put myself in a position to be seized a little bit more by the power of greater affections than the ones that I'm currently seized by? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Let me give you two real quick ones, and then we'll wrap up. The first one is this. Practice worship. Worship God for a few minutes each day. Here's your practice this week. Across the seven weeks of this series, you can get a different practice each week. You can choose which ones you need to do. Again, it's tools. Some tools you use more frequently than others. Okay, this is a really, really good one for me. You practice worship every day for a few minutes each and every morning, and you experience your affections being realigned to God. The Westminster Confession of Faith back in the 1550s, almost 500 years ago, said this, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is this, to love God by enjoying him forever. <laughs> it's a greater affection. It's not just to say no to our affections, it's to say yes to a greater affection. And so the way I do this frequently is putting on a favorite worship song of mine. I say, hey Alexa, play yes and amen. Hey Alexa, play the power of your name, what a beautiful name. Hey Alexa, play how great thou art. And I, in the quiet of my prayer closet, 
I raise my hand and I sing. And it might be ugly here on earth, but it gets beautiful by the time it gets to heaven. Okay, you just need to be secure in your worship of God. It ain't about anyone around you. And I pray that you be more secure in your worship of God in this room as well. It ain't about anyone around you. But I'm telling you, to use your hands, to use your mouth, to fall to your knees, to look up to God. All these are biblical poses but before God, and we grow in our affection for God. And the truth is, my friends, we can never plumb the depths of God's amazing love. We can never plumb the depths of God's amazing grace. We can never plumb the depths of God's limitless power. We can never plumb the depths of God's holiness. We can never plumb the depths of God's merciful forgiveness of you and me. We can never plumb the depths of his great patience, which leads us to repentance. And so we worship every day. We give glory, we exalt his name each and every day. And we experience that he changes us as our affections are aligned to his again and again and again. I say you do it through singing. Maybe you choose to do it through writing or just praying, but worship God. Because worship like connects to the various chambers of our hearts. It just does. Singing does that, music does that. It connects to the high notes and it also connects to the blue notes. And we need connection to both. Really good worship music does that. Connects to the high notes and the blue notes. If that one doesn't work for you, Mom, maybe this is a good one. Or maybe you struggle with personal relationships, as I talked about. You can do this. Choose to express your love to God in one way every single day this week. And while you're at it, choose to express your love for a spouse or a child or a dear friend one time every day this week in a very specific way, because again, this unlocks in really healthy ways other chambers of the human heart which need to be unlocked for us to enjoy the abundant life that God brings to us to tap into the power of a greater affection. I'm not talking about level jumping with people. I'm not talking about telling people that you're just dating, that you love them when it's not time for that. I'm talking about expressing this to your spouse, expressing this to your kids, Expressing this to a really faithful friend who you know is always going to be there for you. This is a beautiful thing. Again, there's this power, this expulsive power to a new and different affection. That we focus our affection on God and on what is good and true and right, and then secondary affections don't have a place. The Bible um, tells us to do this for each other. We frequently don't do this for each other. It's one of the greatest ways that we can care for our own heart and also care for other hearts is by expressing love to one another. Part of the way God designed you is this. God gave you a brain that works like this. It's almost impossible in your brain to hold two competing thoughts together in your mind at the same time. This is the way he made you. And so, if you're discontent... You can choose to dwell on discontent, or you can choose to dwell in gratitude. You can make the choice to express gratitude, and then all of a sudden, discontent doesn't find a place. You're lustful. You can dwell on that, 
Or you can choose to dwell in gratitude for your husband, gratitude for your wife, your covetous. You can dwell on that. Or you can choose to dwell on amazement at how much you do have. And God has designed the brain that we can't hold both of those competing emotions at the same time. And so we use that to our benefit, to be seized more and more by the power of God's greater affection. We begin, number one, with this. I'm anchored in my true identity. I am a child of God, bought with the blood of Christ, ultimately a victor with Christ. And then I work toward reforming my affections by the power of his grace that my desires would be aligned again with his desires. And now we get to celebrate communion, which leads us to that as well. Pray with me. Oh, Father, how we thank you. We thank you that you care about us, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you, Father, that you actually care about our desires, that you want us to be connected with you, that you want us to be connected with a few others. And so, Father, I'm praying that for every person in this room here in the auditorium, everyone watching online and everyone in the auditorium and in the venue as well. Father, would you seize us by the power of your greater affection? Even now as we prepare for communion, this most wonderful element in which we get to remember that Jesus loves us so much that he died for us. I pray, God, that you would seize us afresh. Thank you, God, for your kindness and your grace. We give ourselves to you in the mighty name of Jesus.